Who knows? Flip a coin. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of Bilge Pumps. Thank you for listening as always. This week we are joined by the wonderful Andy Boyd, author of British Naval Intelligence Through the 20th Century and the Eastern Fleet. Both of which are amazing books, and if you haven't got them, the question's going to be why. And, of course, the usual Bill Trump's crew, myself, Dr. Alex Clark, we have got Draginafel, and we have got Jamie from Armoured Carriers. Now, just a quick note, Jamie is currently in fanboy mode. I haven't seen him this excited since we had <laughs> Andrew Lambert on here. So if you, at any point you hear some random giggling or someone ferreting off to run for a book to show him shirt, it's probably Jamie. Look, there's there's always a few authors whose books you always go back to, um, you know. And for me, it's definitely um, Andy's Eastern Fleet, um, and also Hobbs. So we have to get him on board one day. Okay, I'll try that one. <laughs> but uh, no, I have to say, British Naval Intelligence. I have now used it for teaching students. I have. I, I, we're making poor Andy turn a bit pink here because he's mm-hmm. he's like me. He's very British. Um, but we are, I am going to talk about this book quickly because this book, when I have to give it to my students, they are amazed that A, someone managed to put all this information together because it's through the 20th century. So what Andy has basically done is given you an example of all the intelligence gathering and how it builds up and how one layer builds up to the next layer and the next layer and how intelligence is not a quick game like they show you in the movies. It's not something which you dash in and find the information in t- 10, 20 minutes. And then it's most intelligence gathering is year, months, if not years of work to put together and piece together a picture. And it's really, really useful. Um, Andy, I'm going to hand over to you to let you sort of introduce yourself to, to the listeners a bit. <laughs> Well, thank you. I don't really know what to say after that uh, uh, introduction. Um, how did you get into the game? <laughs> uh, how did I get into uh, in, into the game? Um, my background as um, um, people who read uh, um, the back cover of uh, uh, my two books will uh, get a sense of is I started life in the Royal Navy. I was a submariner through uh, most of the 1970s. I then uh, uh, decided uh, on a change of career and moved to the Foreign Office. I did that for about uh, uh, 25 years. Um, I then worked um, briefly for a defense and security company, which uh, had its ups and downs. And um, around 2010, I was in uh, the happy position where I could think of doing something else and uh, it didn't have to pay me money. It's always nice if it does, but it didn't have to. And I saw an advert for the University of Buckingham do a research MA. Um, It looked very interesting. So I thought, why not? Signed up for that. Uh, Next question was, what topic am I going to do? And I wrestled with that quite a bit. I'd always been fascinated with um, um, the um, 
uh, the Far East, uh, the outbreak of the Far East War, and indeed not just the outbreak, but of the Far the Far East War in general, and uh, and particularly the naval the naval dimension. Um, I mean, I think I started reading about Forced and its demise when uh, I was uh, barely into my teens. So I go back uh, that far. Um, I think the first book I read was uh, Richard Huff's uh, The Hunting of Forced, which was probably published about 1961 or two, something like that. Um, and uh, as I thought about it, I thought there are a number of things here I just don't understand. Um, surely we knew much more about uh, the Japanese threat than uh, uh, than uh, most historians seem to imply. Um, we must have seen this threat coming for a considerable uh, period. Um, we must have had a strategy for dealing with it that uh, was rather better than, again, most people imply. Um, so question, um, is the uh, standard account really satisfactory? Is there a story here that merits investigation? So That's my MA thesis really started from there. Um, and at the end of that year, Buckingham said, why don't you do a doctorate? Um, I, my reaction to that was, why would I want to do that? I'm of a certain mm -hmm. age. I don't see myself teaching in a university. Um, it's time and money. I could just write a book. Um, they said, you really do need to do a doctorate. There are all sorts of good reasons for that. Um, so I did. And that, of course, led to the book, The Royal Navy in Eastern Waters. And like everyone, once you do one book, you think, am I going to do another? If so, what? So that's really my story. Uh -huh. Well, I, I have to agree with you very much in terms of the established, you know, challenging the established narratives, um, because a lot of those assumptions are what guide our thinking about, you know, not not only the past but also the present and the future. And if those assumptions are based on incorrect, um, you know, interpretations, incorrect perspectives, uh, incorrect summaries, then your decisions that are based on those assumptions are going to be wrong. So, you know, if we're looking to learn from the past, then we've got to be able to dissect the past as finely and as accurately as possible and accept the fact that, you know, um, a lot of stories go through a, a bit of a myth-making process um, whether it's nostalgia or whether it's trying to um, protect or enhance one's reputation after the fact. And it's only sort of, you know, that 75, 80, 100 years on that you can sort of sit back um, isolated from a lot of those, you know, um, relationship and political pressures and, and go over all the material with a fine tooth comb to untangle the um, the myth making from the the actual process of events. And I think, you know, now that we're in a situation where the tensions in this part of the world are, you know, suddenly relevant again, um, then 
the, the best way we can sort of um, build up a picture of where we're at now and what we might be headed towards is to look for similar situations in the past. And that is not just Fawcett, but it's Singapore, it's the Philippines, um, it's Burma, it's China, it's, you know, it's all of that. Um, but in as detailed and as accurate a framework as possible. I think you also have to always deal with the hindsight challenge in that if you talk to the Royal Navy, if you would look at the Royal Navy in 1938, you'd be looking at their plans for war and their operations. And of course, they're planning on using Singapore as a springboard theater base to go into the, it's not going to be the main base for a war in the Far East, but it's definitely going to springboard one or something. They have six fast fleet oilers. I'm often asked by people, why didn't the Royal Navy start a crash fast fleet oiler program in the late 1930s? They already had six as a legacy from World War One. They were concentrating on building their bulk oilers because they thought they would have to move oil around the world to their bases to support theatre. So they're building those oilers, which makes perfect sense if you think you've got a bit of time before war, if you don't expect it to happen as soon as it does. Unfortunately, war breaks out in 1939. They start shifting forces around the world to cover the European war and eventually the Far Eastern war, which they had been thinking about. And this is, again, one of the things you get into history is people go, oh, the British weren't thinking about the Far Eastern war. They were. They didn't have quite the same planning process as the Americans. But that's because to an extent, the British were. And I'll, I'd like to see if, here, Andy, if he agrees with me on this one. I think the British had worked out looking at the Japanese ships that the Japanese plan was for uh, for uh, any British or American force to go to them and fight them as close to Japan as possible. And I think the British plan was to slowly move up and force the Japanese to come out to them because that would put the Japanese at a disadvantage because they put everything based on coming closer uh, and the the allies being at the the american sort of brits being at the end of their logistics train and the british were the whole plan was to do it slowly methodically tighten a noose and sort of eventually put a blockade but first of all to block them off from the rest of the world at singapore and then move up from there and slowly suit South China Sea, not having any big plan for grandiose attack or anything like that, but to actually almost use the trouble that the Japanese would have with getting supplies, especially once you've blocked them off at Singapore from getting supplies from Southeast Asia in terms of fuel and getting fuel from anywhere else in the world. You know, th that's the British plan is to slowly strangle the Japanese using their global dominance, not to charge and not, not to try and charge in there because they seem to have looked at the Japanese ship designs is my analysis based on what I've seen of the China squadrons reports and gone. They're designing a fleet which is designed for us to go charging in and fight them. If we choose not to. They're going to run out of fuel anyway. So we might as well let them run out of fuel and then go and fight them. Um, yes, I think. Um, I mean, I broadly agree with that, but I think uh, I would qualify by saying that that is essentially the strategy from the mid 20s through to um, 1937. I picked 1937 because uh, the first Sea Lord uh, Chatfield um, still talks about fighting a, 
a trade war and essentially a naval war with Japan at the Imperial Conference uh, that year. Mm-hmm. But um, as my book essentially argues, over over the four years from uh, mid-37 to uh, 41, um, you find uh, um, a major strategic uh, strategic shift. And that's essentially driven by uh, by by two things. I mean, the demands of uh, uh, potential war and then actual war in uh, in in Europe, and um, at the same time, realization that uh, in the East Japan is getting uh, ever stronger um, and uh, uh, is able to take advantage of uh, aspects of the European war notably uh, the collapse of France, the move into Indochina to uh, radically improve its its geographical position and uh, and therefore the threat it poses to British interests and territories. Now, I would argue the British actually respond to this shift in many ways um, uh, pretty well. And that and that response starts prior to the European war. Um, and I think uh, Chamberlain deserves credit for that because um, he recognizes that uh, that that Britain can't uh, fight against uh, three different enemies dispersed in three very different theaters. So something's got to give. And uh, and there is an attempt from the spring of 1939 to say, well, what really matters in uh, in the East? And uh, and the answer is. There's a core. I mean, Australasia matters. Um, there are dominions with all that that uh, with 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 all that that means. They're kith and kin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. India matters because it's the jewel in the crown. Um, therefore, the Indian Ocean matters. Maritime communications to knit uh, this this core together. Uh, Singapore matters because that's our defence linchpin in the east, but China doesn't. I mean, we've got concessions there. We've even got Hong Kong, but ultimately that may have to be dispensable. Now, there are some obvious things left out in that initial thinking, like, well, what about Malaya? And uh, uh, is Singapore really defensible if you can't command a significant area around it? But but the shift in thinking, we've got to uh, to pull back and adopt a more uh, um, defensive strategy is definitely there. That then combines with uh, the Royal Navy recognizing that we've now got the Italians in the Mediterranean. Uh, Chatfield in '37 takes the view. I mean, if we choose between the Far East and the Mediterranean, the Far East matters more. We can just abandon the Mediterranean. Anything we lose there, we can always get it back, which may be a large and bold assumption. But the Far East, once lost, is gone forever. So um, if we choose, that's what matters. Um, And over mid-38, 39, you get a lot of people saying, actually, not sure that's true. The more one thinks about interests in the Middle East, the more one sees that um, there are uh, assets here that are every bit as valuable as anything in the Far East. So how are we going to defend them both? Well, 
essentially were going to have to choose depending on circumstances at the time. And um, we haven't got enough to do everything we'd like to do at uh, in, in both theatres. So we're going to have to choose at the time which appears to matter more and concentrate there or divide between them in a way that seems best expedient. And it will all depend on circumstances. And that's famously expressed by Admiral Cunningham or Vice Admiral, as he then was as Deputy Chief of Naval Staff in um, in the spring of 1939. Now, going on a bit, of course, the collapse of France changes everything for two reasons, because um, it makes uh, the Royal Navy's position in the European and Mediterranean War with Italy coming in much more difficult. Um, and it um, and it offers opportunities to Japan and essentially from the Royal Navy's point of view, it it can't any longer deal with what it faces now in Europe and uh, establish an adequate uh, defensive force against Japan. Um, so it's going to have to find ways of managing the Japanese threat that don't require resources, at least at least for the moment. And essentially, the answer to that, I would say, is you you draw on the defensive strategy that Chamberlain started, even though your resources, even for that defensive strategy, are now even thinner than worst case scenarios in 1939. And I'd say the story of 4041 is uh, what can we do to try and bolster that um, limited defence. And one answer, of course, which we'll come to in more detail is the Americans. Um, and it proves rather difficult for many reasons to uh, get the Americans to provide cover in the Far East that's remotely satisfactory. Anyway, to summarise, we get to mid-1941. And I would say um, at that point, Britain has a pretty good understanding of the threat the Japanese pose. Um, indeed, it's been a constant for at least two years that if the Japanese want to take Malaya, they'll do so with the bulk of their navy, which is far superior to anything we can deploy. And they've proved they're very good at amphibious operations. They can land perhaps uh, at least six divisions, maybe as many as 10 um, in uh, in Malaya if they choose to, and they can cover that with um, uh, air forces based in uh, Indochina of at least five to 600 aircraft. I mean, all of that compared with what the Japanese actually do do is, uh, is very prescient. Um, and I'd say people understand that and they understand the limits of British power. And then suddenly in the late summer of 1941, you get what I would call an extraordinary reversal. Instead of pursuing a defensive strategy focused on holding the Indian Ocean and communications between India out to India or Australia and shielding the Middle East, um, you get this move, well, perhaps we can deploy a battle fleet in Singapore after all. And that's not only Force Z as it becomes, 
it's a much more ambitious um, uh, concept. Um, and it takes you into, uh, you know, will not only deploy to, Singa to Singapore, but will work closely with the Americans. And Was that the uh, by the spring of 42, we'll deploy our battlefield, battle fleet under American air cover in Manila, et cetera, et cetera. And we're now going back to um, where you started, Alex. Um, we're now going to contest the China Sea, and maybe we're going to, if all goes well, start moving north from there, as we always planned to do in the early 1930s. Um, we won't be doing it alone. We'll be doing it with our uh, American cousins. But uh, all this old thinking, traditional thinking, now looks uh, perfectly credible. And I think the fascinating question we perhaps need to focus on is, why did that reversal happen? How could anybody, whether in the British leadership or the American leadership, and there is a whole, of course, parallel area of thinking in the American uh, leadership, the deployment of air forces to the Philippines, mm. and you have General Marshall famously saying um, in late November 41, by the time we've got our B-17 force built up by uh, the spring of next year, Japan tries anything, we're just going to set their paper cities on fire and uh, they'll deeply regret it. So this is not just a British mm. um, ambition, this is a parallel um, American ambition, which to this day people really address and uh, and focus on, partly, I would say, because um, both sides had good reasons to uh, cover over what they thought in late 41 and what they were planning to do in late 41, because set against what the Japanese did, it was horribly embarrassing to contemplate that uh, we thought in these terms. So. There did seem to be an awful lot of politics going on there, wasn't there? There was horse trading about um, what ships would go where. The the United States, I'm not sure who it was, but they seem extremely reluctant to position any sort of force um, in the Western Pacific. Um, but they did seem to be willing to negotiate to replace Force H um, to free up those ships to be moved to the Western Pacific. So I, I I don't really, you know, understand what was going on there. Was this a way of, do you think, of America trying to um, uh, compel British involvement or strengthened British interest in the Western Pacific and, the, and in the in Malaya, Southeast Asia, and um, that the that sort of political game ended up causing a bit of a backfire? Um, I think I think if we if we go back to really the the fall of France and uh, how America reacts to that, um, I think the the American uh, view, and of course it's it's uh, hugely promoted by uh, their ambassador Joe Kennedy in in London, is that uh, Britain's time is is now limited. Britain's going to mm. lose. It's only a matter of time before Britain goes the way of uh, uh, the way of France. 
Um, and um, through that summer of 1940, the big question for the Americans is, uh, um, is Britain going to survive? And if it doesn't, where does that leave us? Um, Who's going to end and, up with the Royal uh, Navy? <laughs> and and uh, where does it leave the Royal Navy? And uh, in a worst case scenario, if the Germans got their hands on all or part of the Royal Navy, or there's um, some sort of uh, um, uh, negotiated uh, peace under duress, um, you know, we, the Americans, could be left in a very uncomfortable position. So people in Washington are thinking, you know, we've spent uh, the last 20 years worrying about Japan. I mean, this is certainly true of the US, the US Navy. Um, almost all our major naval resources are focused on that Japanese threat. Um, perhaps now we've got to think hard about uh, building up uh, an Atlantic uh, fleet and even thinking about Germany as uh, the major threat to the uh, to the United States. So, similar, um, so, so, it was, so it was a case of a pivot to the Atlantic so as opposed a pivot, to a pivot exactly. to the um, to, to, to Asia. So it's a pivot to the Atlantic. Now, I think the next thing is that Britain, of course, um, is keen to encourage that pivot because if the Americans can uh, um, can help uh, uh, a badly stretched Royal Navy in uh, the Atlantic and who knows maybe even in the Mediterranean, well that that has to be good. And the war is being fought here at at the moment. Anything that happens in the in the East is for the moment uh, yeah important, but um, it's potential. It's 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 hypothetical. Um, so through that summer, Britain is thinking more about how can we draw the Americans into an Atlantic alliance than it is about uh, uh, prioritizing American support in the East. Now, as Britain judges its position is getting more secure, the Battle of Britain, um, uh, realization that uh, the German Navy is effectively neutralized as a result of losses in the Norwegian campaign. Um, we've survived the threat of invasion. Um, then British thinking begins to, to shift a bit. We'd still like American support in the Atlantic. Anything they can do would be great, but um, it would be jolly useful if they could guard our flank in the east. And I think here you get a pretty important British miscalculation that um, um, uh, resonates through the next uh, 12 to 15 months. It's uh, a serious overestimate of uh, um, American naval power, a belief that uh, America can not only do a lot to support us in the Atlantic and even the Mediterranean, but uh, they can cover us in the in the east as well. And of course, the reality is the Americans can't do that. Their uh, their navy in uh, um, um, in 1940 is certainly large, uh, but it's somewhat smaller than uh, the Royal Navy, and uh, it's no better place than uh, the Royal Navy to uh, contemplate uh, 
taking on the full might of Japan in the in the Pacific with all the problems that entails of time and distance, and at the same time making a major contribution in the Atlantic as um, US shipbuilding and uh, um, productive capacity takes effect and uh, there are uh, plans well underway to produce a radically larger US Navy, it's all going to be different, but that's two to three years away. Um, so you've got a combination of British miscalculation um, and America looking both ways and actually by the end of 40 pretty clear that the threat that matters most is not to the east, it's it's um, 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 it's oh, sorry, it's not to the West from their point of view, mm. um, i.e. Japan. It's uh, it's the Atlantic and you get Plan Dog, which I cast as essentially a, a national security strategy um, in the event of forthcoming conflict. It's Germany and Italy we have to concentrate on first and we'll fight a, uh, a defensive war if we have to with 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 Japan. Um, so as you go into uh, the winter of 4041, um, Britain having drawn the Americans into the into the Atlantic, although the Americans didn't need that much encouragement, is now thinking, well, we want that cover in the east and the Americans are saying, well, you can't have much. Um, and if you want to defend Singapore, well, don't expect us to take it on. There's certainly no way we're going to move our, our fleet, which is now going to be a reduced fleet from Pearl Harbor to uh, to Singapore and leave Hawaii and the West Coast exposed. Forget it. And uh, were they know, relying um, on were they relying sorry? on the Royal Navy? Were they relying on the Royal Navy to help them defend the Philippines at this point, though? The well, concept of then, forward defence. Sorry. Um, no, I think I, I think there's an interesting uh, sub debate to be had about uh, uh, once it becomes clear to uh, um, to the British leadership that um, basing in Singapore is is not going to happen, uh, and greater understanding of the limits to American power begin to. Uh, to, to creep in. Um, there's an interesting question. Could Britain have done more to uh, um, to encourage a more forward um, US defensive approach? And by that, I mean, um, if Britain had uh, put some forces into uh, into eastern waters in the spring of 41, which really means no more than force age. So if you like a sort of slightly expanded um, force set. Um, and that had started working together with the Asiatic fleet. And it would it then have been possible to encourage some reinforcement of uh, the Asiatic fleet, the US Asiatic fleet in the Philippines? And uh, could that have provided then a, a kernel um, to provide um, a credible defensive screen across uh, the South China Sea, or at least a, a more credible um, defensive screen than we ended up with in, in the autumn. Now, I think actually 
that sort of thinking that never developed very far, though it does exist, was probably um, a rather forlorn hope. And I, guess, I, I think the British would have struggled to provide forces in the spring of 41, and so, so would the Americans. Now, just well, before we sort of, I, sure. I stopped talking, which I ought to do, of yeah. course, just as I've talked about this extraordinary British reversal in the late summer of 41, we get this American reversal, where having essentially decided the Philippines are if not dispensable, not really defensible. And that was certainly a US Navy view. Um, the US Army, with sort of reluctant US Navy acquiescence, decides not only are we going to defend them, and this is not just MacArthur, it's clearly a view held by, uh, uh, by Marshall and, and Arnold, um, we're going to make them a, a serious offensive base. And, um, you know, how that happened, how they ever thought it was, it, it was credible, and back to my question, how it was all to some extent uh, um, brushed over following the disasters at the end of the year is a fascinating question. And be in no doubt, I mean, MacArthur, of course, comes out of the Pacific War as one of the... Uh, the two great heroes, maybe the even the the dominant hero, um, you know the the man who won the war. He returned. But yes. uh, <laughs> but MacArthur's performance in December '41 is appalling because uh, MacArthur manages to, and I think he must bear the prime responsibility. Manages to get all the American air forces in the Philippines, and they are significant on December the 8th, destroyed a day after Pearl Harbor. Um, so this should not have been a surprise attack, which, I mean, you know, Pearl Harbor's happened. You would have thought um, everybody would be on full alert, dispersing as far as they can, etc., etc. Not a bit of it. They managed to get completely massacred by yet another very um, well-calculated Japanese attack. I mean, I, just as a bit of an aside, I, it's one of those things where, you know, it often it's focused on the lack of preparation at Singapore. But, uh, you know, then you encounter stories of the United States Catalinas operating over the South China Sea. They were flying with practice ammunition because no ammunition had been distributed among the live ammunition had been distributed to those forces for the Catalinas. And while they were on anti-submarine and anti-ship patrols carrying live 250 kilogram bombs, when they encountered um, Japanese fighters or Japanese aircraft, they were left firing blanks. And to be fair, MacArthur's tactical acumen, I think, it does get very overblown in in a lot of histories, considering that in, in early to mid 1942, his genius plan to counteract the Japanese offensive was to take what limited 
resources were available in the southwest pacific and then attacked the single most heavily fortified japanese harbor that was in existence at rabaul um to which the u.s navy basically turned around and said you yeah you can try that but we're not taking part which kind of put a kibosh <laughs> on the whole thing um it, i mean but, but much as halsey to a certain extent rightfully does get wrapped over the knuckles for kind of having a bit of a one-track mind at least at, at the very least halsey made sure he actually had the the forces to back up what he was trying to do rather than just rushing off at sort of this is the biggest enemy target therefore i must attack it oh what do you mean we don't actually have the forces to do it that's not how this works uh, and that's a, that's the story of you know the opening of the opening weeks of the war isn't it really um yeah. a little bit too much uh, but a quick question though where, where do you think the um concept of deterrence became futile where did it uh, at what point because, you because you know, where, this did, was, where did it stem from or well uh, i mean uh, i guess the, the great risk here is here is hindsight isn't it um but you know the the whole argument for sending prince of wales and repulse and then issuing news rules saying that the prince of wales and a battle cruiser repulse crew were pretty annoyed that they didn't get named you know openly declaring that these ships were there so the idea was of course if you're going to attack you're going to be drawing us into the war um, um but yeah at, at some point and i i personally think it must have been when you know the the when um japan moved into the uh french um, Indochina, that you know, there the, 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 the should have could have been a point where the, uh, you know deterrence was no longer where, where they could have realised that no deterrence isn't enough anymore. We've actually got to prepare for something a bit more serious. Was that a thing? Yeah, I, I think. Um, let me try and answer that. I think there are sort of series of interesting. Um, um, steps uh, one goes through with the the, de the deterrence part of part of the story. Um, I mean, I think you you start with 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 the context. I mean, we've we've talked about uh, um, the evolving um, American British relationship. Mm. Um, the Americans aren't going to. Uh, um, um, cover for britain in the far east now at the at the uh, um at the first british american staff talks uh which take place between january and and march uh in in in, in 41 there is a debate about the whole far east issue it's not the most important debate but it's a significant part of it and the americans reiterate their uh, uh their position which the british um, are not surprised by, contrary to what a lot of historians have argued, nor is it true that the British try to renew their their lobbying to get a, an American fleet in Singapore. It's already been accepted on the British side. That's not going to happen. But importantly, what does happen is the Americans uh, offer um, a compromise uh, alternative to basing a fleet in Singapore, which is essentially to say 
we are going to uh, provide support in the Atlantic, certainly if we enter the war. And um, um, we will even take over essentially responsibility for the security of the Western Atlantic, and that will release uh, significant forces, O Britain, which you can then redeploy to the Far East if you so choose, uh, because our view is we're not sure Singapore's defensible, but if it's important to you and you keep telling us it is, well, we will help you to, so far as we can, to defend it yourself. Um, so moving into the Atlantic, and it's even discussed at this time the possibility of uh, taking uh, some responsibility for the Mediterranean as well. Um, that will give you a, a new Far East fleet. And uh, by the end of the conference, the Admiralty are indeed clear that if America enters the war, we can put together a, a new Eastern fleet with at least six capital ships. Um, now that is a, is, a, is, a, is a distant prospect at this time. Nobody knows if America is going to, going to enter the war and in what circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea of uh, uh, recreating an Eastern fleet, or in fact, I would say creating for the first time um, a serious Eastern fleet is, is, is now on the table. Now, what happens in the summer uh, after the uh, Placentia Bay uh, um, uh, conference, the first high-level meeting between uh, Churchill and Roosevelt, is uh, the Americans say, we're going to take responsibility for the Western Atlantic, escorting convoys, but also uh, battleship cover, not when we enter the war, but right now, from the beginning of September, in fact. So from the British point of view, um, this is one element in the reversal I discussed earlier. Um, the, Britain no longer has to wait for US entry into the war to create an Eastern fleet. It can start doing so now and sees every prospect of having that fleet in Singapore more or less at the end of the year. Um, and, uh, and planning get seriously underway with with that uh, with, with with that in view now let's shift to what's japan doing at this time and what do people think japan's doing may do uh, you're right they've moved into southern indochina in uh, in july um, the consequence of that has been uh, um, uh, us sanctions um, followed by uh, British and Dutch acquiescence in those sanctions. That, of course, gives Japan a major oil problem because uh, they import uh, most of their oil from the, the Netherlands, East Indies. Um, so from, uh, from this point, Japan is um, starting to, to plan for a southern option in earnest. And there's... Uh, um, I only realized uh, a few days ago, in fact, and I should have realized earlier, that uh, the relevant uh, Senshi Sosho Japanese official history volume has at last been translated into English. And so for the first time, one can uh, 
easily read a pretty authoritative uh, Japanese account of Japanese thinking about uh, uh, the Southern strategy through uh, through this uh, through this summer and autumn. Um, now people are aware that Japan is thinking about its options, but from uh, the British and American point of view, what Japan does is complicated because something else has happened. The Germans have attacked the Soviet Union and uh, Germany and Japan are in an alliance. It doesn't obligate Japan to uh, uh, to attack Russia, but it might be quite uh, tempting to do so. Um, Japan has always looked hungrily at uh, acquisitions in uh, um, in Manchuria. Um, so that's an alternative option. And through the early autumn of uh, 41, um, um, intelligence assessments on both sides of the Atlantic um, struggle with what's Japan going to choose because they probably can't do both. Um, they certainly pose a threat south, but they might decide to go north, in which case we're off the hook, at least in the in the short term. And if we're off the hook in the short term by the spring, everything starts to become different. Um, and you've got the changes we've already discussed. Britain's building up its uh, its fleet in Singapore. Uh, the Americans are building up their forces in the Philippines, etc., etc. Who knows, Britain may even have produced much of the long promised air reinforcements for Malaya, etc. Um, now we move into um, October and uh, Japan still has those choices and still nobody's quite sure which way they're going to jump. But um, the risks of uh, a move to the south certainly seem to be getting uh, um, getting greater and Japan's intent to uh, um, to start hostilities. I mean, there are warning signs, um, for instance, the, the withdrawal of Japanese merchant ship traffic, um, um, deployment of uh, forces uh, uh, southwards in uh, uh, in China, very significantly uh, work on air bases in uh, Indochina, north and south. Um, no radical uh, deployment there yet, but certainly a lot of preparatory work underway. So, so this raises the question, certainly for Churchill and Eden as Foreign Secretary, what can we do to perhaps uh, discourage Japan from going further? And uh, if there is a northern option, um, perhaps even keep them tilted in that direction. So um, we can't do very much uh, further in terms of land and air enforcement. Why not? Because uh, um, Britain is under heavy pressure in, uh, in the Western Desert. Um, a build up to the Crusader offensive, which kicks off in uh, in mid November. So there's frankly no prospect of significant forces being uh, uh, being uh, released from the Middle East, which is the only place they can come from. So it has to be naval. 
Um, and this leads to the idea, well, how can we uh, indicate intent to uh, uh, defend our interests determinedly? We'll send a we'll send a task force. Um, now, what's that task force going to comprise of? Eden would have liked it to be a modern battleship and a carrier. Churchill is more ambivalent over the carrier, but uh, is certainly up for a modern battleship. Um, now here, people talk about Force Z being deployed as a deterrent force. Uh, I mean, the term Force Z only, as we all know, came into being uh, on, the, on the 8th of December. Um, the only real deployment that's new is Prince of Wales and um, two destroyers, because Repulse has already moved to the Indian Ocean, as indeed has the battleship Revenge, Revenge being the first of the four royal sovereigns that will form the core of uh, the new Eastern fleet. Um, the Admiralty has plans to move the two Nelsons as well, but um, by October, that has been stymied because um, Nelson has been torpedoed in a Mediterranean convoy, Halbert in September, so she's out of action for six months. And it's then discovered that Rodney really needs her guns changed, which uh, is going to mean she's not available till early 42 either. So if there's going to be uh, further reinforcement beyond the R class when they become available, um, the only option is Prince of Wales. Um, so which the, the Admiralty reluctantly concede. Uh, what's the alternative? If, if, if there's got to be some further short-term reinforcement, it's Prince of Wales or nothing. Um, now, the next issue in deterrence is, did she have to go all the way to, uh, to Singapore? Um, and was Churchill insistent on building up a force at Singapore? Now, my view is all the evidence is that no, uh, Churchill was mainly focused on the Indian Ocean through the summer and autumn of, of, of 41. What Churchill feared, and he constantly refers to this, was the Japanese moving into the Indian Ocean with uh, a substantial cruiser, maybe battle cruiser force as well, and running amok against um, British convoys. Well, they weren't convoyed up to, um, um, they weren't necessarily convoyed up to the outbreak of a war with Japan, but you know, interdicting British British supply lines, including potentially the vital supply lines to, to the Middle East. Uh, so that's Churchill's um, great, great fear. And, and that is a misunderstanding of Japanese intent, which I'd say is broadly shared with, with the Admiralty, that if Japan um, does look south, um, probably there's going to be a, a graduated um, uh, approach. Maybe they'll start with, uh, with a trade war in the Indian Ocean and, of course, uh, closer, closer to home. And uh, once that's underway and they're making progress with that, um, that will cause 
um, disruption to uh, to British operations, and that's the moment then to uh, uh, to deploy a force against uh, select targets in Southeast Asia, which of course may not necessarily be British in the first instance. They may go straight for the Netherlands East Indies. So I think that's the kind of thinking through summer and uh, and and autumn 4041. Um, so so you could make the case that um, Britain is expecting Japan to do the same as they were doing. In, In that sort of, well, the British war plan. Yeah, the, the British war plan was to go to war and to do a trade war and then start attacking targets. And they were kind of expecting that was their plan sort of in the 1920s, 1930s we discussed. They're sort of expecting Japan to do that back to them. So they're sort of presuming Japan's going to make the same decisions they would, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think that's that that's certainly part of the. Uh, uh, I, I think that's certainly an influence in in uh, in, in British thinking. Um, and as a, as an aside, of course, one of the mistakes Britain makes consistently in uh, in judging Japanese naval capability from the mid 30s, probably through to 1942, is the belief that Japan is building battle cruisers, and indeed by autumn 4041 has already completed their first battle cruiser. Um, now, there's some truth in that, in the sense that Japan does have designs for battle cruisers, but um, those designs are still uh, hypothetical in autumn 41, and nothing has ever been laid down. But the belief that Japan is is not only building, but has completed a battle cruiser, of course, um, fits with this idea that they're going to concentrate on a trade war as a key part of their their naval strategy, and of course you can also see a read out a read across there from what the Germans do if the if the Germans have built battle cruisers. I mean, why would the Japanese not do the same? I mean, they're bound to be talking a lot about uh, the best way of uh, uh, fighting uh, the Royal Navy. It would be a perfectly logical thing to do. So back to deterrence. Um, by the time Prince of Wales gets to Cape Town mid forty, uh, mid November, uh, she's there, I think, from memory, between the sixteenth and eighteenth November. Um, things are changing quite radically. The the evidence for uh, um, an early Japanese attack um, is now accumulating uh, quite 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 fast. Um, and a lot of that evidence is uh, is SIGINT at, 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 at various levels. Uh, some of it is extremely authoritative. We're about to, uh, within days, get um, the first intercepts of the famous WINS messages where um, Japan alerts its uh, overseas embassies that in the event of war, uh, they're going to uh, receive a, a trigger message. Um, and uh, those messages have different references to win depending on who they're they're going to attack. Um, but there are many other warning indicators um, 
building up at, at, at this stage. Perhaps not enough yet to rule out um, letting uh, Prince of Wales and um, either or both uh, Repulse and Revenge move on to Singapore, but uh, certainly cause to be wary. Um, something else also happens at, uh, at Cape Town. Um, the British, um, as part of their deterrence strategy, um, enthusiastically uh, publicize uh, the visit. That is certainly picked up by the Japanese consul and um, and he duly reports and reports uh, um, comprehensively and uh, in a in a pretty sort of balanced way to to Tokyo that uh, this battleship's arrived here and importantly she's bound for Malaya. So if deterrence is um, to take effect um, as soon as that um, Japanese telegram is intercepted, which it is um, by, I think, 23rd of November. Um, you can argue that it's taken effect. The Japanese know that British naval reinforcements, including uh, one of the, the latest battleships, are in uh, eastern, eastern waters. Um, it doesn't really uh, necessitate uh, those ships being in uh, Singapore, they're a potential threat if they're close to Singapore, which they clearly are. Um, we then get to uh, Ceylon, where uh, Prince of Wales arrives on the 28th of November and, uh, and meets Repulse. And the Admiralty now has a big decision um, because by 28th of November, it's clear that uh, war is not only imminent, but the Japanese are almost certainly going south. There's still a bit of debate, but uh, um, the warning indicators are now really flashing red. Um, I mean, it's 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 pretty bold now to say they'll go for the for the northern option against Russia. Um, everything suggests that war is. Uh, Week, a couple of weeks, maybe less away, and and they're going south. So, is it sensible to let uh, Prince of Wales and Repulse go on to Singapore? Because all thinking through the summer, notably expressed by Pound, was that uh, in the event of war, Singapore is vulnerable, um, and if we have forces there that are significant, they should be withdrawn. And um, and what's the need to rush? Um, why not see if the Japanese definitely do attack and in what way they attack? Um, if they go for a trade war first, well, uh, these two ships are ideally placed to uh, protect the Indian Ocean. If they do something more ambitious, well, we can judge our options in accord with circumstances at the time. So, so one of the many fascinating questions, and this is, of course, deterrence related, is um, why did the Admiralty, and I, I do believe it's an Admiralty decision, um, let them go on to, uh, uh, to Singapore? Now, I do have answers to that, um, but I also think it's worth 
airing the question. I mean, if Pound had said to Churchill, uh, Prince of Wales is now at, in Salon with Repulse, I'm going to hold her there for the moment. I don't think Churchill would have uh, would have argued with that. Uh, Pound could have pointed to the intelligence showing the Japanese knew that uh, these ships were in the Indian Ocean. High probability they probably know they're in Ceylon. Um, stop there and see. I guess this is where the, the point comes forward, though, is that once again, was it politics? Because, of course, over this period of time and while Prince of Wales was at Ceylon, you have um, Admiral Phillips flying to Singapore and then on to Manila. But uh, also, you know, it's not just him. There have been discussions with Admiral Hart and the Dutch about forming a joint defence force for the um, Southeast Asia, a joint defence effort. So it's you're already starting to see a um, embryonic coalition, I suppose, at this point. So it's no longer just a consideration about British needs. It's also about how you um, appear and how you look to your um, allies as well. Is that a fair call? Um, yes, I would. I think I would probably qualify that a bit. And this is where it, I mean, the motives of the key players get uh, very interesting because um, um, I mean, what does Churchill really think at at, at, at this point at uh, at the end of November? Um, I think he's uh, yeah he's aware of the intelligence. He's certainly um, seen most, if not all, of that. Um, he's certainly being served raw sigint on a on a on a on a daily basis, as he is throughout uh, throughout the war. Um, I think he's in. Um, he's in little doubt that uh, the risks of uh, attack in the east are now uh, are now are now very high. So, what does he think about the prospects of any lingering deterrence possibility? I think he must have thought realistically that's uh, that that that's over. Um, Japan is is not going to be deterred. Um, I think the next question playing into the sort of political thinking is, uh, um, does Churchill at this point really understand where the Admiralty is going with their reversal, i.e. Um, building up a, a battle fleet in, in, in Singapore? Um, I think he, he knows that's happening. Um, how far he's across the detail of uh, um what the admiralty are ultimately hoping to do with uh, with with this battle fleet um whether their aspirations are, are are realistic and how soon it's going to happen because uh, at present there are only three capital ships in in, in eastern waters and uh, uh the um the arrival of the rest has been has been somewhat uh, delayed I doubt if Churchill is familiar with all the detail of uh, 
discussions with the Americans and and the Dutch. I mean, you know, he'll have a sense of it, but I I, I don't think he's in command of all of of all the detail. Um, and I and I think rather oddly for Churchill, he's probably playing a an acquiescent role here. Um, he's letting so, he's letting the Admiralty uh, he's letting the Admiralty make the running with uh, their forward deployment. How um, does that funnel down to the man on the water, um, Admiral Phillips? Because he's just gone off to Manila. I'm sure he would have had a long um, dialogue from MacArthur. Uh, it's possibly a slightly more um, productive discussion with Hart because he met with both of them in uh, the, the days before Pearl Harbor. And he was, um, he was there for the opening of the war. So he's the person who's having to try and turn this, the signals and the impressions he's getting from the Admiralty and from Churchill into policy on the water, so to speak. So that, that's what's one of the questions that has always come to me was, was he convinced in his visit to Manila that the US desire for a, a forward defence was what uh, was something that he was going to have to contribute towards. Um, all right. Well, let me let me uh, take uh, take that. Um, I think. I mean, I said, you know, why did Pound send the ships on to to Singapore? Um, I mean, I think. Um, I doubt if there was much difference in thinking between Pound and Phillips at, 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 at this stage. I mean, you're right. Phillips, of course, flies on to Singapore um, on the uh, the 30th of no, no, November, if I remember rightly, leaving uh, Prince of Wales and Repulse to uh, to uh, uh, to follow on. And they arrive in Singapore on uh, on, on the 2nd. Um, now, I think what was in the minds of uh, Pound and Phillips at that stage was, first of all, we've got time in hand. Yes, war's looking likely, um, but um, if the Japanese do attack, um, Singapore is not immediately vulnerable. They don't. Everyone, think everyone seemed to be convinced the monsoon season would stop them from doing anything, anything until um, March, April, weren't they? Well, there's a. I mean, there's a, there's a, yeah, there's a, a debate about that. Um, um, uh, certainly, some people did think that was um, a, a constraining factor. Um, I'm not convinced how far that really went, um, because I think everybody from Brooke Popham downwards, and I mean Brooke Popham, the uh, overall commander in chief, Far East, gets a lot of stick some of it deservedly. But uh, I don't think at this stage, end of November, beginning of December, Brooke Popham's in any real doubt that uh, that, that war is imminent. And uh, while there are questions, will the Japanese, you know, they're coming south, but uh, will they go to Thailand first before they think about Malaya? Or would they go straight for Malaya? Or, of course, will they concentrate on uh, parts of the uh, the Netherlands East Indies? Maybe take Borneo first and uh, 
um, and take a graduated approach. I mean, the Japanese, of course, do take a graduated approach, but uh, it's a pretty bloody bold one and uh, has all sorts of uh, fast moving interlocking elements. Um, so I think Singapore is perceived as not immediately vulnerable. So we've got time in hand. I mean, if uh, um, if uh, Prince of Wales and Repulse move to move to Singapore, um, you know, nothing, nothing's irrevocable. Um, we can we can see how things go. Um, I think in uh, then, as you say, there is the American angle. The Americans have been pressing uh, Britain to make uh, um, a much more determined uh, contribution to the defence of the Malay barrier. Um, and they're suspicious of British commitment and motives um, and the whole Admiralty argument for building up an essentially rather inappropriate Eastern fleet based on royal sovereign battleships, which would be useless against Japan, is that at least it's demonstrating intent to hold the Malay barrier. Um, so in Pound's mind, I think holding in Ceylon is going to complicate things with the Americans, and we don't need that. And uh, and Phillips would have thought that too. And I think people also look at what the Americans have got, and they think, you know, there are some significant forces here. Um, they would certainly have thought about the Asiatic fleet submarines. Um, and why would the British have set a great deal of store by that force? Because throughout the 1930s, um, the key initial defensive element in the event of uh, a Japanese attack on British interests was the China fleet submarines, which um, I think were rightly judged an extremely effective force, uh, certainly capable of uh, um, doing a significant amount of damage on any uh, Japanese amphibious um, task force. Um, so if the Americans have got 23 very modern uh, submarines, almost twice what the British ever had, um, and the Dutch have got a further 12, which uh, uh, we know, we the British know, are a pretty useful force as well, which they were. Um, I mean, you know, there's quite a lot in theatre, um, which again plays to the argument, we've got time. Um, now, when Phillips, as you say, flies to meet first MacArthur and Hart, and he flies on the 5th of December, so the meetings take place on the 6th, um, MacArthur, of course, gives a very bombastic presentation. You know, we're building up in the Philippines. Um, uh, every reason to think we can uh, uh, not only defend, but use this as an offensive base. I think Hart is more cautious, um, and the two of them certainly agree that in the early stages of a Japanese attack, um, uh, our resources are somewhat thin, so we're going to be strictly on the defensive. But they, from the accounts of the meeting, which are all on the American side, um, there seems guarded confidence that uh, it should be possible to have a good go at defending the Malay barrier, or at least establishing a sufficient defensive line from which we can recover 
as we build up our forces through 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 the spring. Um, and looking ahead, Phillips certainly seems to have come away feeling that uh, moving uh, the new British battle fleet, albeit primarily still royal sovereigns, up to Manila by say April under American air cover is a perfectly feasible proposition. I mean that idea of a forward base, long a part of British strategy, is 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 firmly is firmly lodged. And then of course, just as they're breaking up the meeting, the news comes that uh, um, Japanese convoys have been sighted in uh, in the in the Gulf of Thailand. So everything is accelerating. Um, one final thing Hart does is he offers four destroyers to Phillips, um, which uh, um, arrive um, in Singapore um, the day after Force Z has has deployed. So there's a there's an interesting little uh, issue there about. Uh, um, the potential strength of force said as opposed to the actuality. Um, so, yes, we have this extraordinary sort of mix of developments in that final in, 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 the, in that final week. Um, and I stress in my book and I would stress again, the one of many things that puzzles me. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I should say. I think uh, the conclusions of this meeting between Phillips and Hart were utterly reckless. I mean, the belief that uh, they could hold uh, the full might of the IJN at uh, this point with what they've got um, Submarines was, and B-17s. Was, was deluded. Um, it was a delusion fully shared in London and Washington. So, you know, one can't place all the blame on, uh, on on them. Um, but um, where are we? So um, yeah, I, I was going to say the, the thing I would emphasize in this final week is um, uh, Phillips's failure to get a first rate intelligence briefing from the Far East Combined Bureau. Um, he doesn't go to the Bureau himself. He doesn't send his operations officer um, and uh, he is accordingly so far as one can see not as up to date on Japanese dispositions and capability as he could and should have been. Yeah, I mean personally uh, personally I think I don't know if you'd agree but I think deterrence the deterrence force as you say you know stopping the IJM with these forces isn't going to happen but the idea of them being even a deterrent to the Japanese at all I, I think it kind of ultimately fell over with the with the Washington as far back as the Washington Naval Treaty because um, although they're making plans theoretical plans of what they can do together um, none of these deterrent plans can assume you know, America can't assume that Britain's going to go to war at the same time with Japan and Britain can't assume that America will go to war at the same time with Japan. So they, these individual plans have to, to a certain extent, have to be thought of as just the Royal Navy or just the US Navy uh, right up until the very last minute. 
and when that occurs you have to think about okay they've got the 553 ratio which is great if the royal navy is fighting the japanese navy or the us navy is fighting the japanese navy but given that the anglo-german naval treaty had near enough given the germans approximately the same ratio to the royal navy as the 1.75 that the italians and the french had once it became clear that, that if the royal navy is going to stick to the treaty require uh, restrictions if they're facing a potential alliance of Italy, Germany and Japan, which by 1940-41 they very clearly are, well, it, you know, apart from anything else, it doesn't take a, a math genius to add up 1.75, 1.75 and 3 and come up with a result that's greater than 5. So <laughs> at that point, if you try and fight everybody, you're outnumbered. We know that obviously the Royal Navy wants to have a preponderance of force against any opponent it wants to defeat. So considering they've effectively got two 1.75 navies, i.e. an overall 3.5 versus their five in uh, Italy and Germany, then obviously about barring war losses, then the Royal Navy is going to have to commit at least that much, if not more force to dealing with the European theater, which leaves them with far too little force to deal with the Japanese. And the Japanese can do the math just as well as anybody else. And they can work out that, you know, yes, this the Royal Navy might send something, but whatever they can send whilst they're tied up with the Germans and the Italians is not going to be enough to stop the Japanese. And if they, the Japanese know it's not going to be enough to stop them, then it's no longer a deterrent. Uh, combined, maybe there's a certain amount of deterrence to be had. But as you pointed out, you know, there's, the, the majority of the reduced American Pacific fleet is over in Pearl Harbor, so it's not there immediately. Um, and obviously the Japanese, although the, the British and the Americans don't know that, the Japanese do know that their, their major plan is to knock out most, if not all, of the Pacific fleet already. Um, so I guess they're probably mentally writing off the Pacific fleet at that point. And just looking at the US Asiatic force and the the whatever the Royal Navy can put into the Pacific Indian Ocean area at that time and going, well, is this a viable deterrent? No. Therefore, we either can safely ignore it or just go after it, which is obviously historically what they did. Whereas whilst the Washington Treaty may well have calmed things down in terms of an arms race in the 1920s, I suppose there's probably a, there is an argument to be made that perhaps by continuing that treaty system into the 1930s and especially with so, uh, with some building programs curtailed by politicians who are for whatever reason still kind of trying to adhere to treaty limits even once Japan had made it very clear in the mid 1930s that they weren't going to um, adhere you, you kind of set yourself up with the a ceiling of capability against which an enemy could calculate whether or not they were they they could overcome your forces in theater whereas without those treaty restrictions when you add up the economies which is obviously eventually what decides that the world war ii in the pacific anyway um although politically perhaps the spending to to increase the navy's commensurate to the economies may not have been popular at home that spending may well have actually served as a deterrent because if 
the if the Royal Navy and the US Navy were to receive us the similar level of commitment to expanding their fleets as the Japanese Navy was to received to expanding its fleet in the 1930s, you'd end up with a Royal Navy that's actually far larger and far more powerful, which then as a whole would have been quite a deterrent. And even even though they couldn't commit everything to the Pacific because of the European theater, that still may have been enough to serve as a deterrent, especially in combination with whatever other forces in Dutch, Australian, American that might have been in the area. But I don't know what you think. I think I think your 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 point is is is, is valid in that um, um, Washington and uh, and and the other treaties um, leave Japan um, in a stronger position in uh, the Eastern Theater in uh, um, the late 1930s than. Uh, um, Britain, with its commitments in Europe, can never hope to match. And uh, from 1940, as we've discussed, if America's going to make a significant deployment in uh, um, in the uh, in the Atlantic, that America can match either. So, um, so both both the two Western powers are 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 outmatched singly. Um, now, if they could have um, concentrated and uh, uh, produced uh, an effective uh, 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 collaborative uh, framework for, for managing the Japanese threat, which you know I accept was always going to be difficult because Britain's focused on defending uh, um, its Southeast Asia territories and the Malay barrier, while America's got to think about Hawaii, the West Coast, the Philippines. So it's a very divergent theater um so uh, um so yes it was always going to be difficult the qualification i'd make is of course the timing is interesting because i mean if japan had delayed six months um which i mean if it had thought more about exploring a, a northern option um or decided to be a bit more cautious is not is not impossible. Things would have begun to look very different. You've then got uh, um, a significant British force in Singapore, broadly comparable to what the Americans have in uh, uh, in, in in Pearl Harbor, albeit importantly without the carriers. Um, and um, uh, you have a significant air force in, in in the Philippines, both bombers for offen offensive use and uh, fighter cover with the radar and uh, early warning that uh, that goes with that. Um, and uh, by the spring of 42, Britain is also, as she demonstrates under duress, in a position to provide much more effective modern reinforcements. Um, if Japan hadn't attacked, I mean, we can assume Prince of Wales might have stayed might have stayed in the east, but she would probably, by the spring, have been joined by at least at least a couple of carriers, and in extremis, at least one more could be uh, could be offered. So, I think Japan 
um, facing a hypothetical war in May 1942 would find the odds um, um, far less far less appealing. Um, and the Japanese offensive when it came from between December and April um, did depend on everything going pretty right. Um, you know, it was a it was a very elaborate plan. It was masterfully executed. Um, allied performance for all sorts of reasons was on the whole woeful and much more woeful than uh, the Japanese might reasonably have anticipated. Um, the Japanese still had a had a lot of luck. If any one of those interlocking uh, uh, carefully phased operations had been seriously disrupted. Mm. Um, for example, if the Allied submarines had worked and done what <laughs> they should have done, and one could reasonably have expected them to do, and taken out a significant amount of Japanese amphibious and supply shipping, um, the Japanese problem in sustaining uh, this complex series of offensive moves would have been much harder, maybe even too hard in some respects. So so I think um, going back to Washington has some force, but um, one's got to qualify it with a lot of uh, uh, later developments. Um, perhaps the last thing I'd say about that is I think it is fascinating looking at how the Japanese allocate their uh, uh, their resources in the in the late 30s, and the extent to which um, their naval building program is hugely skewed by the super battleship program. And as we all know, in the end, they only complete they only complete two of these ships, and none of them ever do anything useful. But the price of that in foregone resources is. Uh, is is massive. Uh, Japan only lays down uh, uh, two fleet carriers in the late 30s. Britain lays down uh, six. Um, Japan lays down uh, uh, no cruisers in that period. Britain lays down 32. Um, so, you know, there are, there are interesting questions to pose there about uh, Japanese ability to sustain a long war um, after these wonderful successes they achieve in the first six months. Yes, construction priority is, is a subject of debate even now, of course, isn't it? Um, you know, the supercarriers versus support ships versus you know um, submarines versus cruisers is uh um absolutely orcas and all that <laughs> i i think the reality and the lesson always from me for the, from that construction program is um this is going to sound terrible you need them all you honestly there's always the people who go well if the royal navy hadn't built the king george v they could have built more this and more that I, i'm sorry you actually need the king george v in world war ii you do actually need them especially the beginning part because whilst aircraft do become powerful and i'm a naval my phd is in naval aviation that's what i focus on development of naval aviation 1920s and 30s if there's anyone more qualified or other who's done more research 
in that area to me, I'm I'm sure that I would hope they would agree with me because I would go. The thing is, you can see the potential coming from aircraft. You've got people like Admiral Henderson arguing for the potential of the coming of aircraft, but they're also quite honest in admitting it's not that there yet. The thing is, they're talking about it when he's talking about carriers. He's saying we're designing the carriers for this generation of aircraft, and they're going to be useful. But they're not going to be really useful until they've got the next and possibly the next next generation of aircraft, which is actually quite right when you sort of look at the aircraft and as they deploy. So they're thinking like that. And if you're looking at the Japanese, the fact is they're skew they're focused on those super battleships, which I think possibly that's also that's part of that program is also where the RN gets the idea of the battle cruisers coming from, because I think I think they're looking at. It, it's going to sound strange. I always get the sense that they have an idea that these ships are going to be very far ships. And if you're not thinking, expecting a supersized battleship of the size that the Yamatas are, if you're sort of thinking it's going to be big, but not that that big, then you could well be tempted if you're thinking, if you're hearing things about their engine and their horsepower to think battle cruiser. Because of the capital ships, usually the one which has the far more horsepower and needs it is the battlecruiser, which also tend to also be the bigger ones, if we consider them. Usually they are stretched. They are the longer ships. So if you've got a long capital ship in construction, a big capital ship in the construction, and it's going to be powerful and, and fast, and that's sort of the idea that British are getting from their intelligence is how I read your book and how I've read the source in the archives, then to me that it's going to sound strange. I'm I'm not surprised. Again, you point out the logic of the Germans earlier advising. I'm not surprised the British were expecting a battle cruiser rather than a supersized battleship. Yeah, I think I agree. I think that's um, so. Where where does that leave us now? Um, deterrence hasn't worked. <laughs> no. no. <coughs> Well, and mm. I was going to say, so, sort of looking looking at the uh, at the current era, um, it, it does hold. I mean, when was the last time deterrence actually worked? <laughs> when there was going to be a major conflict? Everyone has this strange idea that that deterrence will somehow stop a war, but to be perfectly honest, apart from nuclear deterrence potentially stopping a nuclear war. I think the only time deterrence that I can think of in the past. Oh, probably at least 500 years. The only time deterrence has actually worked was when the power that was doing the deterring had such an overwhelming level of force that it was clearly insanity to actually try fighting them. But that was a that you know that's you're talking about a level of force where your opponent outmatches you by either factors of two three or four or possibly even entire orders of magnitude and even then it's not necessarily worked it's just worked long enough until somebody's worked up the industrial base to decide they're going to have a go at challenging them anyway i think the problem is a matter of perspective i think deterrence is only really obvious uh, when it's no longer there uh for example arc royal and the falklands Mm. Yeah. Although again, that's kind of the thing, isn't it? It's like if you consider when Ark Royal and the 1970s Royal Navy was there, 
the balance of force between the Royal Navy and the Argentine Navy was considerable. Um, the Royal Navy had a considerable degree of superiority, whereas come 1982, when it looked like Invincible was going to be sold to Australia, Hermes was going to be retired, and even what they did have didn't necessarily stack them on paper all that favourably with Ventasinca de Mayo. <laughs> um, all of a sudden, although the Royal Navy's theoretically got a margin of superiority, it doesn't look insurmountable anymore. Um, obviously, that calculation didn't work out particularly well for the Argentinians, but it gave them the boldness to, to try at least. Well, my argument with deterrence normally is that there is two things you need to achieve it. There is one, an uncertainty factor, and two, there is a fear factor. In that, and the fear can also be called a respect, a respect scenario. In the uncertainty factor, the RN as in deterrence for the Japanese in the 20s and 30s, I would argue, is always based on their cruisers and their deployment of cruisers to the Far East and their submarines. The idea is the submarines make it very difficult for you to attack them because they provide you with a defensive perimeter and the cruisers can go after your trade. So that's, uh, you know, and if we look at the, I would say not so much the Singh Tao incident with HMS Birmingham, but I would certainly go for the Asamamaru incident with HMS Liverpool, where basically the Royal Navy turn up within eyesight almost of the Japanese coast and of Tokyo Bay pluck a, mer a merchant ship and one of their more famous merchant ships out of the ocean and take off the German sailors aboard her and do that within very close distance to Japan. That is the Royal Navy doing a deterrent operation because that basically shows Japan, look, we can operate in your back door and you don't even know we're there until we want you to. So you cut, you don't want to risk it. But that only works as long as Japan is confident that the British have enough force in the area to actually do that. And once the British are sufficiently enmeshed in the European war, the British don't have the force to do that. So there's no deterrent factor. And it's, the, uh, and so it's sort of a fear and it's an uncertainty. They don't know. They know the British are there. That's the fear. And they don't know where the, precisely they are. That's the uncertainty. And that's been a deterrent factor and a complication for their planning. But once you've got the British war on drown, you've, you've suddenly got to answer those questions. And I think it goes the same with if, if we consider the more recent experience, uh, experience and this really does fit in your paradigm, Drac, uh, Guatemala and the defence of uh, what was British Honduras at that time, but is now Belize, I think, from remembering my geography. Historian, not geographer. Please don't kill me. Uh, <laughs> the, the the point is HMS Ark Royal comes running across the ocean, buccaneers go flying across and suddenly the, you know, Venezuelans go, uh, okay, this might not be a good idea. This, uh, we, the, the, we might, you know, Logotomans go, this might not work, you know, we, we might not win this one. And the thing is, the reason it's not, it's not winnable is they, A, they have an Air Force which is mostly made up of Mustangs, but B, they're sort of going, they don't know where the British carrier is. They can't, they are afraid of the British carrier, but it doesn't carry that much aircraft. Honestly, they could do something about it. But the thing is, it can be anywhere striking them. They don't know where it is and they don't know how close it is. They don't know how much force it is bringing. They know they've seen two aircraft, but those two aircraft could be a long-range tanker mission, 
and as it actually was, or those two aircraft could have been just the aircraft the carrier chose to deploy over it. And really, sitting over the horizon is a cap with a Gannett Airborne Early Warning sitting there ready going, come on, come up in the air. We want you to come flying, Mustangs. We've got some phantoms who want to make ace. It, they don't know. And I think this is the reality of the Terence that's often forgotten. And I think also, in my case, I would always make the case of 4C, it should have been Ceylon, because the moment it's at Singapore, it's known exactly where it is. Whereas if it's operating between Ceylon and Singapore and is just sort of operating and just at sea in that area, the Japanese have no resources that can tell them where it is. And that makes it far more scary because, yes, it could be at Singapore when he was at Singapore, but it could also have gone through any of the other straits and be somewhere in the South China Sea. You don't know. That makes it more complicated from a planning perspective. That means you have to start factoring in far larger forces to go with your force. But when you know it's at Singapore, you can work out, OK, that's the angle of attack. I therefore only need this amount of force to protect this fleet. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, which I suppose, so just pursuing the deterrence uh, argu argu argument for a uh, <clears throat> for a moment. The, uh, um, I mean, I certainly argue in my book the, the the major British mistake was to was to think it could uh, um, adopt a forward defensive position in. Uh, two theatres rather than one. Um, and for well understood reasons, it had to be forward in the Middle East. It's fighting a war there. Therefore, it was actually, in my view, never credible to sustain uh, Malaya and, and Singapore. Um, I mean, you can put a holding force there, but you had to accept if the Japanese really go for it, they're, they're just not defensible with the resources we can make available at this time. Um, so so if you're going to deter, um, the best you can do from a British perspective in late 41 is, as you say, play on uncertainty. Um, you know, you've got modern, some modern forces in the area, um, but um, you're not going to know exactly where they are and uh, and what they might do. So it's a it's an unpleasant complication to your um, to your to your planning if you're if, if you're Japan. Um, now I think I mean it's just worth going back. You know, was all this to some extent just an issue of timing? I mean, I I do find that sort of question. If the war had broken out six months later, um, would Japan have uh, um, have held back? Um, because everything would have looked rather different. You've got substantial um, American forces in, uh, in in the Philippines. You've got a British fleet in Singapore. You've still got Pearl Harbor. Um, you've probably got. Uh, at least some good enhancements to the limited British air power in, in Malaya. The Australian-built Beauforts might finally have arrived. 
etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you're Japan, you can certainly still take out um, one of those elements, but um, can you really count on uh, um, on on taking out enough to make uh, your sudden strike viable? Um, I mean, there's limited point in getting into counterfactuals of this of, of this thought of, of this sort, but um, um, but I think it's 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 just useful useful to air it because this would all have been in the minds of the the key players at the time. I mean, uh, Hart and Phillips, however reckless and deluded one may judge them to have been. Um, coming out of that meeting on the 6th of December. Um, I mean, I'm a bit more sympathetic if I sort of think um, they had good reason to think some elements of uh, their existing forces would perform much better than they did, point one, but also they were all very fixed on what we're going to have in the coming months. And uh, um, I guess one way to wrap up this discussion, because we've been going for a while, is the other aspect to that, which is the performance of, of the Japanese. Um, in, the, in particular, I suppose, the ability of the um, Bettys to carry torpedoes as far as they did. That, you know, that does seem to have been possibly the, the, the main fault of um, Phillips's decision to divert for said to check out the uh, uh, what ended up being a false report of a of a landing further south on the Malaya Peninsula. He felt that he was out of range of the torpedo bombers and that uh, he could handle the uh, high altitude bombers. At least that's my reading of the situation. It's the you, you said earlier that um, you know there was a reasonably good um, understanding of Japanese technical um, abilities. But had that filtered down far enough through the fleet to be useful? Um, I, 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 I think the sort of um, traditional view that uh, the loss of uh, aforesaid um, um, was a consequence of uh, failure, Royal Naval failure to uh, to learn the lessons of air power. Um, and then, as you say, you can throw in uh, um, a lack of understanding of what a, a modern land-based uh, long-range torpedo bomber could do, um, um, entrenched prejudices by um, on the part of Phillips uh, personally. I think, you know, one, one can question actually all of that, and I, and I do um, to a great extent in in my book, because I think a lot of that thinking leaves out uh, experience with the Italians in the Mediterranean. And of course, a lot of the early histories um, um, uh, present the Italians as uh, um, uh, pretty primitive and, uh, and ineffective and uh, militarily not to be taken particularly seriously. Well, I mean, as I stress in my book, I mean, that was not uh, um, uh, not the view that uh, Cunningham took in uh, the Mediterranean between uh, uh, 40 and 42. Um, 
and and that's important because uh, um, as he stressed the Italians uh, were bloody effective when it became to came to air power at sea their reconnaissance was exceptional um, their high bombing he said was uh, um, the best I ever saw far better than uh, the Germans and uh, their torpedo aircraft were bloody frightening I mean their um, I mean, the, the the Italian torpedo bombers uh, were just as effective as uh, um, uh, as the Betty or any, and and so were their so were their tactics. So, um, I guess the difference is range, though. The, the expectation um, yes, as to how so far so they there is reach. a range yeah. issue, and I think there again, I would still be. Um, 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 say in regard to Phillips's decisions. I mean, um, at that time, nobody had conducted an effective strike at 400 miles. Now, that's not just the range of the aircraft, it's the ability to find, fix and strike at, at, at that distance. And I would say, you know, the Japanese, one can forget, were, were lucky. I mean, they, okay, they had a very effective search plan, but they didn't find foresaid easily, partly because um, they didn't anticipate they would divert to, to Kuantan. Um, they could easily have missed them. Um, they had further luck with their first torpedo hit on Prince of Wales. Um, um, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. you can argue not the first or the last time that a battleship got uh, the most modern battleship got hit in a critical place but uh, you know a few seconds different and uh, they might have missed or they would um, hit her in a place where it would just have been uh, it would just have been brushed off and then and then perhaps the whole action becomes rather different and uh, um, given uh, Repulse's fantastic performance in outmaneuvering uh, um, torpedoes, the Japanese yeah. aircraft till late on, uh, they might have uh, uh, they might have survived relatively unscathed. Mm. The Japanese then have no more torpedoes immediately available in theatre. It's a one-shot operation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Um, but no, it's just like the concept. So, for example, in the modern world, we aren't really um, on top of the implications and effectiveness of modern missiles. You know, the short range ballistic hypersonic kind of weapons and um, yeah, the, the way that um, uh, Russia and China are relying on these, or not so much relying, but at least putting emphasis on this as a counter to the modern capital ship, which is the United States um, supercarriers and uh, to some degree Queen Elizabeth and um, Prince of Wales. So it's, it's that sort of gap in understanding that provided the window, I suppose, of opportunity, possibly. If Phillips was aware that torpedo bombers could be effective at that range, you know, and again, what if, I suppose, is a pointless question, but, you know, it might have weighed differently on his decision making because, you know, my understanding of it is that he felt that he could handle high altitude bombing, but he was deadly surprised when those, when the, when the Bettys arrived and then they dropped down to sea level. 
and was you know the reports from people that were on the bridge with him um or at least with um the captain of uh, repulse was that they were all startled by that unexpected development um i think i mean i mean that's certainly true they were they were not expecting um torpedo aircraft and they should have been which goes back to um uh, i mean a major failing i would place on phillips was uh, given he had four days in singapore um, um before he set off to see macarthur and hart he failed to get a proper intelligence briefing and and that briefing would have not only updated him on uh, um, the capability of Japanese aircraft, but it would have left him in no doubt there are naval aircraft in uh, uh, in Indochina and they are torpedo capable. I mean, I mean, they might not have got the numbers exactly right, but they would certainly have uh, uh, underlined that uh, um, if you're going into the Gulf of Thailand, which, of course, he was hoping to do, then uh, um, you know, even if you do gain surprise at dawn on the 10th of December, you know, be prepared for a for a long, bloody battle of attrition on uh, uh, on retiring. Uh, that's why he turned around in the first place, because he was getting too close to shore, and he'd been discovered, and he he felt that he was under well, potentially he felt that he was under you know too high a risk from air attack. Which is why yeah, he did his. And, and I mean, which is his why whole, he bought it. I can't fault the premise of um, the operation. I mean, I I think once he was there in Singapore on the um, on, on the eighth of December, the Japanese have attacked. I mean, there was no option but to uh, to have a to have a go at the landing. Um, and I mean, I say in my book, while various other Royal Navy admirals criticised Phillips in all sorts of ways after the war. Um, they invariably failed to distinguish between uh, not being in Singapore in the first place, which we've discussed uh, at length, reflected very complex politics and uh, what they might have done on the 8th of December. I mean, I think on the whole, on the 8th of December, they would all have done pretty well what he did. They would all have made broadly the same choices. I mean, he was relying on fighter cover. Um, um, well, uh, by that point, well, that point, the Royal Navy does kind of have precedence because they've had Norway, Crete, Greece. Um, let's see, also Dunkirk and also the St. Malo and various other operations. The Royal Navy does have a habit of even if it's in the face of dire odds, they will go in to try and help the army out. So I always I agree. I, I whenever I find as someone sort of basically saying, oh well, da, 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 I wouldn't uh, we would we wouldn't have done it. I go, you would have done in the nicest way. Any admiral at that time would have made the same decision if they were based at Singapore, which is another reason why I really do wish they'd been left at Ceylon, yeah. because they would have been just far enough back they could have demurred about that. Maybe gone. Oh well, what we'll do is we'll form up with Abda first and form that into a large task force exactly. or something like that. And also, one of the things that's often misunderstood about Phillips, he's he is not by any stretch of the imagination air power advocate. 
But he is also one of the people who does get behind Henderson in order in, in uh, who's the third Sea Lord in the 19, like, uh, most of, for most of the 1930s. And of course, being the for, first rear admiral aircraft carriers. And you can't have a bigger carrier advocate than Henderson. He's basically the entire reason we have a carrier program in the 1930s and have all those carriers because he basically sits on politicians and sits on admirals until they give him the money he wants for aircraft carriers. There are a fair number who agree with him, but they would like to give less money if they could and do less. There's even Chatfield at one point talks about, well, well can't we churn out a 10,000 ton carrier? And Henderson basically looks at him and he's insane. That's a very, that's an entire, could be an entire book itself. Henderson and Chatfield's relationship. How much was said and how many times did Chatfield think that, why can't I fire my third sea lord? Oh, yes, he's better at politics than me. If I try to fire him, I'll get fired instead. Okay. Um, but the thing is, Phillips had actually backed up Henderson in ordering and pushing for the armored carrier program. And the point of view had been as for their air defense, because you go for the armored carrier because they'll be survivable. So it's one of the things is that Phillips is one of the admirals who helped push for the armored carrier program. And almost none of those admirals actually get to use them in combat. Phillips, of course, doesn't have one when he sunk. Henderson, of course, had died at the beginning of war. Cunningham had been agnostic about them, but turns into a much lo a lover of them once he gets hold of them. He then goes, you know what? I have a I like this shit. And I want more of them. It, yeah, yeah uh, uh, this it, it, it's one of those sad things that the Royal Navy's, in many ways, the ones who have been most important to defining the program, which is going to define their carrier their carrier strategy and their carrier doctrine, because. As much as I would like to post around Ark Royal, which was their strike carrier concept, they they quickly shift into building their armoured carriers, which are their fleet carriers, and their plan is to build more strike carriers later on, which were supposed to be implacable and indefatigable, but they, so they turn into a fusion of the strike carrier and the armoured carrier concept, and then it, of course, turns into the Audacious class and all that sort of stuff. But the thing is... The Royal Navy, uh, all the admirals who came together and got that carrier program through, none of them actually get to use it or get to actually be involved in it in war. And I always think that's almost a sad, that's a sad thing because they were the ones who had the idea of that concept. And it would be interesting to see how they use that concept. And in this case, if if you hadn't had, and this is something I will blame Churchill for, because my reading of it very much when I read the documents is the Admiralty didn't mind the capital ship program being paused when the World War II started. They understood that. But they wanted to keep the carriers going because the carriers were for anti-submarine warfare and they were for ocean reconnaissance and all these things. And they knew they needed carriers more quickly almost than they needed capital. They needed capital ships. And yet they're paused along with the capital ship production. And if you hadn't had that pause, if you hadn't had that decision made early on about the carriers and the carriers have been kept on, you'd have probably had another one, another two carriers in service. And the odds are Phillips would have had a carrier with him. It might have been one of the older carriers. I'm not saying he'd have got one of new carriers. Jamie, don't look at me like that. I know you don't like what ifs. But. The odds are if you've got one or two more carriers in service, you're not going to deploy 4C as it was without a carrier for protection. And the odds are then 
it might have turned out very differently. And we might be talking about Phillips in a very different way because it might have been another, it might be associated with the carrier battles of the Pacific and it might have done well. But as it is, he instead is associated with this, what is considered this last run of capital ships, of battleships and battle crews of the dreadnought era against the aircraft era almost. And it's almost unfair on him. Yeah, I, I think I think that's um, that's right. Um, and he certainly deserves huge credit for boosting the carrier program in the in the late thirties. Any final observations then about what we what, what's the what the key takeaways of um, the whole scenario that led up to, to force it? Um, I think I always come back. I mean, I mean, what I've underlined uh, in my book and thinking about it since is. Uh, um, the fascinating thing about uh, the lead up to the far, to the outbreak of the Far, far East War and uh, and what happened in, uh, in in the early months is that uh, um, certainly British strategy. I'm I'm less uh, um, I'm more doubtful about U.S. strategy, but I think British strategy was. Uh, um, was well well thought out and well matched to the problem it faced up to the summer of uh, 41. Um, you know, there are there are issues one can uh, one can question, but uh, um, but 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 up to that point, Britain was adopting a uh, you know, a sensible view of its uh, of its ultimate priorities and and how it uh, and how it could defend them. And then you get this extraordinary reversal, which leads not just to the loss of uh, the loss of foresaid, um, but uh, to everything uh, that ever, that everything follows. And arguably, it's only really checked at uh, at midway. Um, and um, why that reversal? Why that reversal happened? And what all the key players? really thought about uh, um, the decisions they were making and their p possible consequences, I still find uh, tantalizing. I mean, I've I've offered my views on most of it and uh, I feel, you know, I've tried to plot a way through it, but uh, there are still lots of questions to ask. Um, and uh, and it's not made easier because um, so much of it was quickly glossed over, really, from immediately after the Japanese attacks, and certainly in uh, uh, post-war testimony of all those involved. I mean, uh, um, you know, you can almost search in vain for, for anybody at uh, senior level in the Royal Navy uh, confirming that uh, yes, we had an offensive strategy and late 41 and uh, with hindsight it was a complete disaster and we bear a great responsibility for that i mean nobody either admits or puts their hand up to it and the consequence of that of course is that people can don't learn those lessons they don't learn and people from those mistakes uh, yeah, yeah. My, my only closing comment would be 
you know learning from it would be to expect problems and situations to change massively very very quickly because you know we consider the situation on december the 6th on december the 6th the u.s pacific fleet was in pearl harbor afloat um the philippines were had as uh as andy's mentioned a considerable number of aircraft um the royal navy had what was about to become force force z present in singapore with escorts they had ships in refit ready ready to go hopefully relatively soon the japanese didn't have any particular um, anti-shipping airstrike capability in range of the expected area of operations and 48 hours later pretty much all of those (laughs) had changed um all of a sudden it had gone from you know foresaid being a potential ally to the US Pacific Fleet to the US Pacific Fleet no longer exists. The Philippines are under attack. Most of their air force has been destroyed. And, you know, even within 24 hours before Forset is sailing, the Japanese have gone from having no aircraft strike capability in the region to having quite a considerable amount of airstrike capability in the region. And so war plans that looked good on December the 6th don't look so good on December the 8th, but that's 48 hours of a lot of chaos for people to try and work out what's going on and ultimately perhaps it's not entirely appreciated quickly enough exactly how much things have changed and thus you end up with the situation um, that happens on December the 10th but the takeaway going forward would be you know expect that kind of possible upset and uh, and try and have not necessarily worst case scenario backup plans but at least have to open the possibility that you have to react in a slightly different way if everything else has suddenly been upended. Yeah, I think that I think that's a that's a really um, good 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 point, and uh, in many ways, I mean, I mean, you're you're back to uh, um, the time the time in hand issue. Mm. Um, you know why? Why? Why do we think we can uh, adopt this more forward approach? Because we've got time in hand. Why have we got time in hand? Because look, we've got all these uh, uh, these comfort factors. We were building up in Singapore. We've got uh, the Philippines. That's going to be pretty impressive. And of course, we've got Pearl Harbor, and we've got the submarines, which we mustn't forget. Um, so, well, you know, if they do try something, they're still going to get a bloody nose. They might do some damage but as you say that was a huge miscalculation yeah okay well andy i want to say thank you thank you very much that's been that's amazing and we hope you've enjoyed and we I hope you might consider coming come back again talk to us again sometime and well thank you i'm sure our listeners will agree with us in saying thank you for that that was amazing and also mm-hmm. i will add a little message to our listeners as this will be last this year Merry Christmas, seasons, greetings, whatever. I hope you have a lovely winter time, or in, in case of Amer- in Australia, summertime. And I hope you have a wonderful new year. And we will see you in uh, here. Well, we will talk to you again in January. Mm-hmm. Thank you we'll very be much. back. Merry Christmas from <laughs> me, too. <laughs> see you all later. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch
bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs> 